Gospels, and I think especially in Luke, they are often given contexts. You know, as opposed to just kind of random parables, which you do see some of those in the Gospels sometimes. A lot of times in Luke, you can see exactly why he taught them, which is a help in just trying to understand what he's trying, the point he's trying to get across. So, uh, we'll see the context in the first one of these. There's three, uh, in one to seven. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with him. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. All right. So they see how the low life is coming and listening to Jesus. And who doesn't like it? Better than thou, Pharisee. <laughs> exactly. You know, the fact that Jesus was receiving sinners and eating with them ought to have been one of the most joyful statements in the scripture. Wow, what a wonderful thing it is to know that. But they looked down on sinners. Jesus looked for sinners. You know, they had totally different ideas. They they had a very different idea as to who was qualified to be a member in Jesus' kingdom. And you can see these Pharisees saying, these people never come to our services. You know, he must be just telling them what they want to hear. You know, he's probably just soft-pedaling it. You know, if, they, if he had some really uh, strong, you know, forceful teaching, they wouldn't come to it. Uh, so, you know, Jesus... Jesus really is doing some things and, and is in a context where the religious people really kind of think he's, you know, I don't know, liberal. You know, he's not he's not uh, as strict about who he lets come to him as he ought to be. So Jesus tells this story about a guy who has hundred sheep and one of them gets lost. Now he says, what man among you, if it was you that had the hundred sheep and lost one? Um, you know, it, it's always helpful to kind of put the shoe on our own foot. What would you do if it was one of your sheep? Would you say, well, you win some and you lose some? Probably not if it was your sheep. You know, even though you got 99 saved, you're really concerned about that one that's lost. And you put a disproportionate amount of effort and concern when you come up one short. The lost sheep receives special attention. How should that make the 99 sheep feel, if they have any reasoning ability? Secure? Exactly. Because they know that the shepherd will look for them if they get lost too. What a blessing to the, even the 99 to know they have a shepherd that values every sheep like that. And uh, so he goes and looks for it. What does he do when he finds this lost sheep? Rejoices. Absolutely. Carries on his shoulder, brings it home rejoicing. And when he gets home, what does he do? 
tells everybody about it. Has a big celebration inviting everybody. <laughs> you know, rejoice, I found the sheep that was lost. Now, do you see him beating the sheep for, for getting lost? Or do you see him grumbling at all the trouble it took me to go find that sheep? You know, he is merciful to the lost sheep. And he's joyful about the fact that he found that sheep. It's always a joy to find something missing. You know, how many times have you lost something? And once you find it, you're like, I found it, I found it. Uh, Sandra and I lose things rather regularly. <laughs> I think it's a matter of uh, our youth and undeveloped memory and things like that. And so we're constantly celebrating, finding things. <laughs> the more things you lose, the more you get to find and you find the joy of that discovery, you understand. And uh, so we have that experience fairly often and it's it's really great. Uh, and, and, and that's the mindset Jesus has about these lost sinners. What a wonderful, joyous blessing it is to find them. He's just so happy about that. Um, the Pharisees are resentful. I mean, they just think this is awful that he's letting these, these kind of people come to him and eat with him. But he's thrilled they're doing it. God is kinder than man. You know, so we need to change our mindset about lost sheep, about people who've done really bad stuff, who want to turn to the Lord. Um, and I think trying to analyze it as if it was one of our sheep, because it is one of the Lord's sheep, every single person, makes it makes it more understandable, the attitude Jesus had. Thoughts and comments on that? It's kind of interesting that the question, how should the 99 feel? They should feel secure, but a lot of times we feel jealous. Sometimes we do, yes. We wish we got that much attention. Why are we spending so much time with that person? Well, that's the older brother in the story. You know, it's... this, This story always just seems a little comical to me. I can't help but think, you know, he calls all his friends together and they have a big feast and they cook the sheep and eat it. Maybe so. (laughs) No, it's the fatted cow. Oh. Tiny calf, though. Found the sheep and the calf pays for it. (laughs) Yeah. So the calf was hoping they wouldn't find the sheep. (laughs) I hadn't thought about it that way, but yes. Yeah, there's just, uh, you know, I think this is a reasonable illustration. And a couple of them come to mind, actually. Um, in Brazil recently, there's been a situation where um, I do a study where people come from a lot of different places to that study. And the brethren in that town do a lot of the logistics, it's really kind of my deal, but, but they are very involved with it, and they, you know, are very uh, helpful with it. And, but, but they sent out a message on Facebook, and inadvertently, 
they had a couple of people in the list to receive the message that I think the person who sent it out didn't even realize had been withdrawn from by whatever church they had been a part of somewhere else in Brazil. And so that came to the ears of the congregation, and they got pretty concerned about that. And I have interacted with several of them about it, and several of them were just like, well, we got to be sure that nobody who's been withdrawn from comes to this study. Uh-huh. You know, and they had they they delegated a person to call me and find out for sure from me that I wasn't bringing anybody to the study who'd been withdrawn from. Well, I said, well, you know, I'd kind of be surprised at somebody who's been withdrawn from wanting to come to a study like this, but if they did, that would be wonderful. We, they said, ah, yes, but we eat. <laughs> <laughs> so several of them had said they would not come to the study if anybody who would been withdrawn from came to it. And uh, I said, you know, now what was the purpose of not eating? Well, so they'd come back. Well, you know, if they're willing to come to a study like this, it's kind of like... Well, but if they haven't actually, you know, resolved the issue with this church or whatever, I said, what about the father of the prodigal son? He didn't wait for him to get home and make sure he was going to say all the right things and do the right things before he ran to meet him. And it looks to me like he didn't even let him finish the confession. You know, it's like we would be thrilled. Now, I understand if it was a church party, okay, I'd feel differently. But this is a very intensive study where the meals are incidental. They're not the reason for it. And I said, I could understand even if you're dealing with some false teacher who's trying to gain fresh meat for his false doctrines or something like that. But if it's somebody who's just fallen away through sin or neglect or whatever, who's really wanting to come to a study, we would would rejoice. We'd take that as a sign of his desire, at least, to repent. But I think it's so easy for us to think about, you know, the proper protocol. You know, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, and uh, and and I have. I'll give another story. I'm too storied here, but um, in thinking about, you know, the jealousy we might have, I'll camouflage this a little bit. But there was a, was a congregation where there were a handful of teenagers, and and a couple of them uh, committed some really serious sins, and repented publicly, made a public statement on all that, and the brethren, who were very loving, were quite emotionally compassionate and encouraging to these young people who'd done some really bad things with some bad consequences, but were willing to turn back to the Lord and really try to deal with it properly. Well, I was talking shortly after that with one of the men in that congregation who had a similar aged son. He said it was so hard for him to see these two boys who'd messed up their lives getting all this attention and support and encouragement and hear his son hadn't done any of these things and he wasn't getting all of that. I understood how he felt. You know, and he was saying that not because he wanted to feel that way, but he was confessing that and trying to overcome that feeling. But I think sometimes it's easy for us to feel that way. You know, it's almost like, well, what do I have to do to get some attention around here? Do I need to really mess up bad? Uh, Well, what we've got to do is, is feel like the father, feel like the shepherd. We need to rejoice 
that our brother has returned instead of feeling jealous that he's getting attention we're not. But that sometimes is a challenge. This The elder brother, we're not there yet, I realize, mm-hmm. but the elder brother and the prodigal son has attitudes that I think are understandable when you really think about it. They're not right, but I, wow, it's easy to feel the way he does. Okay, how about 8 to 10? Or what woman who has ten silver coins, and if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now, alright, you can understand this one. Here's a woman who has ten coins. I, I think these coins would probably be worth about a day's labor. So, I don't know. What have you thought about having $1,000 bills? And you lose one. What would you do about it? Look for it. Yeah. <laughs> Might mean a little more to Timothy than it does to some people. But uh, you would look for it. And you'd feel bummed that you'd lost it. And you, you can see why this woman lit the lamp and swept the house and searched carefully. You don't want to lose something like that. She goes to great lengths. And when she finds it, what does she do? At the party. Yeah, she throws a party too. Now, if you as much as the <laughs> maybe so. But better to spend it on a party than to lose it, right? So, if you, if a human being will exert this much effort to recover lost property, how much more God will expend Himself to recover a lost person? That he loves. Now, when you stop and think about these stories, Jesus is worse than the Pharisees thought. He's not just receiving the sinners. He's seeking for them. He's going after them, trying to get them. Now, we want to share the attitude of Jesus. We seek the sinner. Seeking sinners is some of the most godlike work we can engage in. That's what the Lord does. That's why Jesus came. You think about how much God cares, his concern. We are to sell, we, we as disciples need to be seeking lost sheep and missing coins and celebrate finding what was lost. And we need, evangelism is all about the joy of recovering the lost. I, I really think we need more the spirit and heart of Jesus, more joy at the repentance of a sinner. You know, and 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 never a holier-than-thou attitude. Well, I'm sure glad I'm not like they are. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You know, we all are hopelessly lost without the grace of Christ. There's not a single one of us that almost got to be saved by our own record or anything like that. And so we all need to to seek other lost people and rejoice when they come to the Lord. Thoughts and comments? You know that all of these parables in this area, I what I get the most out of them is that kind of basically puts out what is what should our main concentration be. A lot of the bad reactions that other people in these parables have are worldly kind of reactions like you know I want attention or I I want what is my just sh- 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 or money or whatever 
but that our concentration should be we want to get we, we we want to help as many people get to heaven as we possibly can and that is what our goal should be in the end amen amen have you ever heard this described as like some kind of wedding coins or something like that? I have not. Okay, I thought I read that somewhere. Oh, I have. <laughs> I've heard that too. That okay. This wasn't just like <clears throat> 10 days labor. This was like part of her dowry and a oh. piece of jewelry. And so it was it was precious. And there were supposed to be 10 coins on it. and Like losing your wedding ring or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Do you know... Where they came from, or I don't remember where I read it. It may be true. I don't remember ever reading that. Well, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Obviously, everybody else has heard that. I don't think I have. But you know, as I say, you know, I'm kind of like the. uh, uh, I've probably told this before, but but the uh, guy uh, I knew uh, in Chattanooga, and I I had held a meeting at this congregation several years before. I remembered him well, liked the old guy, and I held a weekend meeting. So I was there on Friday night. And he comes in. And I said, hey, Bill, how you doing? He said, well, you know, I'm doing pretty well. He said, you know, I, I can't remember anything anymore. But he said, that means I wake up every day and I don't have anything to worry about because I can't remember anything to worry about. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I often think I did never know something. And then I look back at old notes and I found out I did know it. I just completely <laughs> forgotten <laughs> knowing it. So it's wow. possible. All right. Anything else on this section? All right, let's start in 11 then. I, I, let's uh, do this in segments, I think. 11 to 13. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all, <laughs> gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with his father living. Well, that's a nice start for a parable, don't you think? What do you think about this uh, younger son? What's he want? His share. Of? Money. The estate. Um, When do you commonly get your share of the estate? When the person that owns the estate dies. Well... His father wouldn't do him the kindness of dying, and he can't wait any longer, so he asks for his inheritance already. You know, that. what do you think about that kind of spirit? I can understand if his dad was offended. <laughs> yeah, I would be. It's kind of rude, don't you think? Or is it a little bit worse than that? Um, I assume that means that he gave a third of the estate to the younger son, and he kept the other part that will eventually belong to the older son, the two things. That's what I'm assuming happened. Um, and, well, we soon find out that this younger son wanted the father's stuff, but he didn't want the father. Because <laughs> where does he go? Far, far away. Why far, far away? So they don't know what he's doing. Yeah. He didn't want to be under his father's rules. You know, he didn't want anybody checking up on him, you know, and all that. Uh, he wanted independence. You know, some things you can't do at home. Um, what's the father's attitude toward all this? I don't see it. Let's see. It 
he he did it. So yes, and, he, and that's kind of he did kind of weird. That is a little weird. He gave him the money. He lets him go. He doesn't even chase him over to the far country and drag him back. You know, so how does God deal with us? Does he let us go? And does he let us do what we want? I mean, he doesn't take away our free will. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. But he's not going to make us stay with him and do what he wants. This kid goes off and just blows his bundle on a bunch of garbage. No loose living. I don't know what all he did, but I have ideas. You know, he was freedom, no responsibility, living it up. And his father lets him do it. It's a good lesson for parents. You know, his father didn't lower his standards to keep him. You know, sometimes... You've got to let somebody go so that they learn. Now, you know, you think about this young boy, young man, living it up. Is that what we kind of admire? You know, can you imagine the younger boys in the far country looking at this guy and saying, boy, I wish I could live like that. Can you imagine the elder brother back home hearing reports and wondering, thinking, Boy, I wish I could live like that. I think he's felt that way. Can you imagine parents saying, well, I really want my kids to be rich and popular and have a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it's kind of what we all want sometimes. Freedom without responsibility. Wonder what this boy thought about himself. You know, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. You know, I'll be fine. You know, if dad warned him on the way out the door, I suspect he said, I don't need your advice anymore. Thank you for everything you've done so far. But I can handle it very well myself. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the first stage of this. You know, the, the far country, the, the son taking the inheritance and just blowing it on a bunch of wild living. Thoughts and comments? Is there any instruction for us in the father's sort of lack of uh, grasping, you know, the son? Whether that's an actual parent-child or if it's just a friend who decides to leave the Lord. Is that a biblical principle that, you know, we at some point just sort of let them go? Yeah, I mean, I think we can't make people serve the Lord. And we can try to. We can encourage them to do what's <laughs> right. But so often we feel responsible. Like, how can I make my children or my best friend or my husband or my wife or what? Well, you can't. Everybody chooses for themselves. I think it's a part of the free will. Uh, you train, you teach, you lovingly entreat. But ultimately, if somebody wants to go to the far country and live it up, God gives them that ability, that opportunity. Yes, I don't know if it's the exact parallel because this is more of what God does. Right. Basically, with everybody that sins, they all, you know, we all leave. So he's just reiterating that exact same story in 
in this. Yes, I think what we do need to see in this story, it would be helpful if we could see that we are this boy who's abused God's gifts and blessings and generosity and even tried to hide things from him but that we knew better and didn't do better. A lot of ways to think about this story. This is one of the fullest and richest stories, parables Jesus teaches. So it's got lots of angles and lots of things to meditate on. Obviously in parables you're always questioning, is this detail a part of the imagery or is this uh, something to gain a lesson from? I understand there's always that debate. I tend to probably lean a little farther on the side of we can learn a lesson from a lot of these details, but I realize that we need to be sure we're grounding those lessons and other principles in the Bible. Well, how about uh, 14 to 16? Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. <clears throat> and he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving him anything. Well, isn't this the way it happens? Of all the terrible luck, the very time his <laughs> money runs out, the famine hits. You know, so it just makes his bad situation way worse. And his world collapses around him and he's in trouble. And he finally hires out to do what? (laughs) Which he must have been in desperate straits as a Jewish boy to even consider that job. But the truth of the matter is it was worse than that. What was he longing to eat? I have never had any appetite for a big slop. Can you imagine getting so hungry that that looked good? Depends on what they're eating. <laughs> <laughs> Not to me. Um, you know, the owner obviously is more interested in keeping the pigs fed than his pig keeper fed. You know? Isn't that, isn't that terrible? Um, sin has consequences. You know, Everything looked hunky-dory while he was going great guns over in the far country, but when the money ran out, he realizes how empty this was and unsatisfying. That far country and the loose living sure look tempting. They're exciting, but they lead to the pig bed sooner or later. Thoughts and comments? Are, are we going too far with the pig thing? Um, you couldn't eat a pig. But would the Jews have thought like it was gross to be around a pig? I think so. Yeah. You could. Could you eat a horse? No, because it doesn't yeah, have a cloak. Yeah. And so, and they didn't think it was gross to be around horses. Like the kings had horses, so I wasn't quite sure. If they had a special thing about pigs. Okay. That's my impression: is that <laughs> pigs. <laughs> Pigs seem to be especially repulsive to them. I'm not saying necessarily they should have been in the law. You're right. You could you could have physical contact with an unclean animal that was alive, and it didn't make you unclean. Okay. But but they did seem rather repulsed by pigs. So this is more like a 
Semi-cultural. More of like a Jewish yeah. cultural I thing think so. than just the, the law. Okay. Egyptians that makes sense. about cattle. Yes. Okay. And, <clears throat> yeah. And various people have things like that. So that's my take. Uh, that's not law and gospel. No, that makes sense. Well, like, um, that... Was it Antiochus Epiphanes who sacrificed like pigs on the altar or something like that? He didn't sacrifice horses. So. Right, right. Okay. I think he knew that was getting the Jews' goat. Or okay. Okay. I couldn't figure out like why pigs are so bad from the law, but yeah, I think it's not so much from the law. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why do you think he would work for this guy if he couldn't? If he wasn't getting anything out of it. I assume he was getting something, but it was worse than pig slop. And if things are bad, there's no jobs right. anywhere. So it'd be like, you know, you take the minimum wage or whatever jobs available because there's, there are no other options. Yeah. I think it shows how bad off he was. Otherwise so it wasn't, like, it. enough to buy any food, even? Well, maybe it bought food, but not as good as the pig slop. Maybe not enough. Or maybe not enough, yeah, that's no. right. Okay. And okay, so this is from left field, I think. So you come in. The pig owner cared more about keeping the pigs fed than his hired hand, and that made me think about uh, sort of stretching the the parable a little. <laughs> Who's this pig owner? I mean. The, well, the pig owner is like Satan in the sense that he doesn't care about his, the, this son, this man who's, you know, starving while feeding his pigs, while serving him, in a sense. So, I probably wouldn't stretch that, but it's just an interesting concept to think about. It, it follows that if it's not a good deal. You're not dealing with somebody who's compassionate. And, yeah. Very good. All right. How about 17 to the first sentence in 20? But when he had came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. Okay. This is encouraging. And you see the steps he takes. First he comes to his senses. He reflects. One good thing about pigsties, they give you time to think. And he was kind of, you know, he came to himself like he was kind of uh, out of his head while he was living it up in sin. But he snaps out of it. And he really faces up to where he's at and the desperate situation he's in. Which is something we got to do. You know, we want to just continue to act like everything's okay. As they say, whistle past the graveyard. But it's not okay. And we know it's not okay. And part of the, the first step is acknowledging, wow, I'm in bad shape. And that's what he does. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. So he starts by reflecting, and then he resolves. He says, I will. He doesn't say, I'd like to, I want to, I intend to, I ought to. He said, I will. (coughs) He will go to his father. And he will say, I've sinned. That's hard to say. 
especially to your father when you probably, when you were going out the door, said, Pop, I don't need you anymore. He recognizes his unworthiness. He kind of rehearses the speech while he's in the pigsty. Now, can a man like that ever really repent? You know, I think we might question that, but I think everything the Lord teaches is, yes, he can. Don't underestimate God's ability to transform wicked people. And he returns. He says, I will. And he does. He got up and came to his father. Now, that's not easy. It's not easy physically. You know, he was hungry. It was a long trip. Remember, this was a far country. Doesn't have any shoes, obviously, because his father's going to bring some, put them on him. And besides that, man, I'd have sold my shoes for food. It's hard psychologically. Got to eat his words. Hard emotionally. I mean, in a sense, does this young man know that his father's willing to even let him be one of the hired men? His father may come and uh, may say to him, you know, get out of my face. I'm not about to make you a hired man. I wouldn't use somebody like you for that. You know, so, I mean, it's hard to come back. It always is hard to come back. But it's got to be done. He came to himself. Now he's got to come to his father. And he, he, he does. He gets up and he comes. So great lessons in some of the steps that it takes to come back to the Lord. Comments and questions? Yes, I was, I was going to ask, what do you think it means when he says, Father, I have sinned, in the New King James, at least, it says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. That before you part, is he saying, I have sinned against you, or I have sinned in your presence, in your sight? And I guess, based on that then, if he has sinned against his father, is it a necessary component for him to go to his father and repent to him in order to be forgiven of that. Obviously, in this case, he needs to go back there because he doesn't have any food, but could he just repent to God and not go back and repent to his father and be okay? I know that's like a very <laughs> complex Well, I don't think questions. this passage settles that question. Now, right. my, pa- my translation says I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Okay. Um... So, I think we do need to make amends when possible with those we've sinned against, but I don't think that's really what this passage right. is. Okay. And if, and in the parable, the Father is God. It is, but I think in the, the way this son is talking about it, he's thinking about God and his Father. <clears throat> right. yeah. Yeah. Carrying my pig owner metaphor a little further. He, You're picking out here. He, he figured out that his father was a better master than the pig owner was. Yes, he is. So definitely, he's still going to be somebody's servant. He's still going to be doing stuff he may or may not like, but he at least he can eat. Yeah, his father is the better master than the pig owner. Yep. Good point. All right, twenty to twenty-four. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead 
and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Wow. So while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I take it the father has been looking and hoping. The decision had to be the son's. But your life is never such a wreck that God won't receive you back. He felt compassion. He cares about this worthless, no-count son who's getting exactly what he deserved over there in the pig pen. He runs. God will run. There's a great little book on this parable entitled, Will God Run? And this passage tells us God will run. He breaks out protocol. You know, the father sees him coming and runs to him. You know, we might have imagined he'd run away from him. But he runs to him. And before he's got a chance to clean up his life and change his heart and repent. You know, imagine this wealthy landowner uh, running down the street of his village. Uh, just really, really powerful. And he hugs him and kisses him. You know, here's this dirty, stinking hog slopper who's throwing away your hard-earned money. And, you know, he cares about it. So that's amazing. It throws this party for it. I mean, wow. Just He just keeps going and going. You know, he, he puts shoes on him and robe and ring and all this. You know, he doesn't lecture him on his irresponsibility. You know, tough love is still love. And the boys learned his lesson. No need to pour, pour salt in the wound of his humiliation. So, you know... It's just really amazing. He didn't deserve it. I mean, you know, you think about all this the Father does. And on one level, you look at that and you think, that is just ridiculous. What in the world is this Father thinking? That boy, he needs a good whipping. He needs a good tongue lashing. You know, he got what he deserved anyhow. Send him back to the far country. But on the other hand, think about the Father's love for the Son. And then realize, Anything we say about what this prodigal son deserves is what we deserve. What a blessing we have a father who is so unreasonably gracious. Is so just incredibly merciful. We have a father who will never leave us, even though we leave him. And whose deepest desire and greatest joy is to receive us back home with more blessings than we can imagine. Who can refuse a father like that? Reminds me of a passage in Hosea 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Let me just go, just a picture of the father's love for the erring child. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and unreasonable. Because of how erring the child has been. You know, it's just amazing that Father has those kind of uh, attitudes. Other thoughts? Sometimes when we see someone repent of a, or confess like a really serious sin, um, our first instinct might be to, you know, just say, you know, how could you do that? Uh, you know, do you realize how 
serious this is, how much damage you cause. Um, but if they're at the point of repentance, that's not what they need. Uh, I mean, if someone's stubborn and unwilling to admit that they did wrong, then you know maybe they need that. Um, but that is to bring them to the point of repentance. Anything beyond that will just you know drive them to despair. Excellent point. Yes. Yeah, I think we need to really um, un- understand the point where they are and provide the kind of message that the Lord would at that point. Good point. And that's an easy thing to do. Man, it's easy to beat the guy up when what he needs is encouragement. It can be difficult perhaps when we didn't see the person go through those steps. So, like, we maybe saw them leave and do the sinful things, and then maybe we weren't there when they came to themselves and they sort of said, oh, I'm going to repent. And so we're like, wait, you you missed the step. But um, maybe we weren't present when they <laughs> completed that thought process or whatever. So what should guide how we treat them? wherever they actually are right now. Desiring what's best for them. So we don't want to become an enabler because that wouldn't be best for them. But we don't want to beat them up when they need encouragement. That's not what's best for them. So we're trying to understand where they're at and what they need so that we can provide what would be the best for them. I think that's our goal. So there may be a time to reprove still. Second Corinthians two ish. Uh, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him; otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Yes. Thinking that there was we affirm your love. Yeah. That, I mean that. That's when it needs to happen, as opposed to that long talk afterwards that says, now the next time... uh, Right. Again, I think love dictates that. You know, how do you feel when you come to yourself and when you finally awaken to how bad what you've done is? You know, what do you need in that situation? You already feel as bad about yourself as you could possibly feel. Do you need somebody to remind you of how bad it was, or do you need somebody to tell you the Lord is merciful? On the other hand, when you're still trying to justify it and defend it and still practicing it, do you need somebody to reassure you, well, God loves you and everything will be fine, or do you need somebody to warn you and and, and lecture you? I mean, it depends on where we're at, what we need. It reminds me of James when he talks about the anger of men not... um producing the righteousness of God, and I think a lot of times, like, we can be personally angry, and, like, if I can show you how angry I am, it's going to make you good, but, like, me being angry doesn't make anyone else good. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many good lessons in this, you know, in just how how merciful the Father is, and how much we need that, how much we need to see ourselves as this prodigal son, how encouraging it is to know the Father's attitude toward us when we humble ourselves and return. And then we want to have the Father's attitude toward others. So we ought to have the same degree of mercy and grace. That is hard to do sometimes. You know, there are times when, you know, receiving 
and celebrating the return of the prodigal son almost makes us look as bad as he was. You know, and, and people are like, eh, I don't know if you ought to be, you know, receiving him like that. I don't know if he's really straightened up. I mean, you know, I, I've had some situations like that where I recognize that to be close to somebody and, and be supportive and encouraging was exposing me to the possibility of people seeing me as soft or maybe naive. And that's hard to do. I'm not saying I've always handled that right, either. But it helps when you love the person. And love hopes all things, believes all things. I I think love does not enable, because that's not the best thing for the person. But love is not skeptical. Love is, is eager to see the person change. And, and when somebody's really brought, been humbled by sin, they need the reaffirmation of the love, lest they be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, which is uh, the point that Paul was making in 2 Corinthians 2. There's a lot to think about. We've got to be really unselfish. And uh, because sometimes we feel like the Pharisees did. Well, they ought to, you know, I don't think they ought to be accepted back just like that. I mean, come on. You know, they hurt me too bad. Other thoughts? All right, well, why don't we stop here then, not try to do the older brother tonight, but... uh